0: These two, th- th- this passage, you're going to notice if you haven't already, you're going to notice two very different things going on. But these two things actually work together. So, today during our discussion time, just read all the verses and anything's gained. And if you are reminded of another portion of Scripture that speaks to the things that you see in the passage today, Then just bring it up. There's a lot there. And so I'm going to focus on one part, one idea in the passage today. Next week I'm going to focus on another big idea in the passage. And we're going to kind of look at how these things work together. Because understanding how the two ideas in these six verses work together is very important for us as we grow in our faith and as we walk with Jesus. So let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world, Many ideas. We learned some things about John. We learned some things about his readers. We learned some things about what they're doing. We learned some things about what's happened to them. We learned some things about what they should be doing and what we all should be doing. There's a a huge command in the last half of this passage... Verses 12 through 14, though the first three verses of our passage today are a little bit different. I can remember earlier this year looking at this, these passages with Joe and we're, you know, starting to look at 1 John as a whole. And, you know, these this is like, I don't want to say the black sheep of the family, but it's just... The thing that stands out like what's that there for, okay the other stuff I you know, okay, abide in the light, live like Jesus, love your brother, you know don 't love stuff more than you love God, you know I get all that, but you know children, you know young men fathers, children, young men fathers, children young men fathers what what is you've done this you've done that you've done this, and John you keep repeating yourself, you already said that you know, these first three verses are it's different than What we're used to, and at least in my opinion, it's not what I expect as I am reading a letter. Now, who is John? John was one of the twelve disciples. He is an apostle. He was a fisherman. Jesus chose him early on in his ministry, and he lived with Jesus for about three years. Jesus died and rose again. John wrote John's Gospel which is the fourth book of the New Testament. It it teaches us about the life of Jesus from before the beginning of creation until the time he died and he rose again and he went back up to heaven. And John, at this stage of his life, is at least 85 years old. He's in the final stages of life, and he is writing to a group of Christians that he dearly, dearly loves. There's many affectionate terms throughout uh, 1 John. I keep saying the book of 1 John. I should say... John's first letter or John's first epistle. But verses 12 through 14 is different. It's almost like a parenthetical statement. You ever been reading a book, you read a paragraph, and then all of a sudden there's a parenthesis? It's, It's like something that the author decided to put there, but truly it doesn't have to be there. And it might expand on a definition or it might expand on an idea in whatever's being written. It might It's connected or it wouldn't be there, but it's, uh, it's, it's not necessary for it to be there. And I think for John, that he puts verses 12 through 14 in here because he doesn't want his readers to lose sight Of what is most important. He doesn't have to say verses 12 through 14. If he would have left that out, it still would have been a great letter. But he chose to put that there. And what he writes in verses 12 through 14, it flows from his fatherly heart. That part of him that just loves the people that he's writing to. He just reminds them of this. Because he knows if they don't understand this, then the other things that he's writing about how we're supposed to live, we're not going to have the power to do those things if we do not understand what's first and foremost that he reminds them of in verses 12 through 14. The risk for John in not putting 12 through 14 in is that the reader will hear the commands and be crushed. By our imperfections and by our sin. The passage we saw last week and some that we're going to see in the weeks to come. On first glance, it almost sounds like you have to be perfect. But as we saw last week and as we will see more, Christ has provided for our sin, for our imperfections. And what John wants us to see is not only has provision and forgiveness for our sin been offered to us and been accomplished, But Christ also gives the power to obey the commands. These realities... In verses 12 through 14, that are an, of an objective nature, objective being something that we know is true, something in the past, something that cannot be undone. But these realities that our sins are forgiven and all these things, they are of an objective nature and they drive us, they fuel us, they motivate us, they give us power to obey the commands to not love the world and to live as Jesus lived. Because I don't know about you, it's hard to live. Is Jesus lives. Truth is, I do know about you. We're just like, it's hard! It's hard! Because every once in a while you want to slug somebody. Somebody mentioned that at our table today. So, you know, we get these things inside of us, and, and that's hard. And so, John, in last week's passage, he offered two tests. He said, subject yourself to these tests to see if you're a Christian or not. Do you love your brothers? And do you walk in the light I mean, do you, do you live as Jesus lived, and do you obey his command? So he issued these tests. And when he does this, he is not trying to give his readers the impression that I don't think you qualify. He's not trying to give those that he knows and loves, you know, he's not stamping an F, you know, on, on their report card. He's not saying that he doubts the reality of their faith. But he is saying that i know that there's a group of people among you who do not live this way and they're trying to act like christians they they want you to think they're christians but they really believe things that are totally opposed to the christian message we've already seen that in previous passages and we're going to see that especially in two weeks and then throughout chapter three we're going to see this that there are false teachers and john is saying they aren't living like this okay their sins aren't forgiven they don't know the father They don't know him who is from the beginning. They have not overcome the evil one. They're actually giving themselves to the evil one. But I'm writing to you, child of God, and I know your sins are forgiven. I know that you know him who is from the beginning. I know that you abide in the word of God and that you have overcome the evil one. He's writing these things because he wants them to know that he is confident of their salvation. And as I think about him doing that for them, I think about you. you know, I can't speak for everyone in the room, but I know many of you very well. And most of you, I'm confident of your salvation. Because I've seen your love, I've seen the fruit of good works, I've seen your desire to be like him. I've seen you struggle and I've seen you at the bottom and you give yourself to God when you're at the bottom. And he lifts you up and he exalts you and he puts you back on the right path and you continue to walk it. You're not walking in perfection. But you know what? You're on the path of Christian maturity. Amen. And so as I read these things in verses 12 through 14, I can say, yes, that one and that one and that one. And I can look before me at this moment in time and I can say that that's true for you, you and you and you. I can't say that it's true for everyone in this room, but I can say that these things are true for many of them. John's purpose in writing is to confirm their standing with God. And he wants to rob the false teachers, the liars, the people who are in there who are narcissistic, who are trying to be manipulative and to control what's going on in the church and to make it about them instead of making it about God. He's he's saying, you know, these things are not true of you. These things are true for the true child of God. So verses 12 through 14, it comes right in the middle of some pretty big commands. Last week we saw, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We saw verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We even see on into, in verse 15, 16, and 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, those things aren't from the Father. But they are from the world. And all that stuff is passing away. The world and all the sinful desires of it. Those things are going away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So John's using, like, he's got strong commands. You can't do this. And you're supposed to live that way. We're Christians. We're supposed to tell each other. You may not say those things and do those things. There are times where each of us will have to say that to a brother or sister. Now we want to restore the person gently. We know that's other teachings of Scripture, but there are times where we draw a line in the sand and we say we cannot do that. This is not appropriate. So John has all these strong commands, and he pauses, and we get verses 12 through 14. Instead of John focusing on what you are supposed to be doing as a Christian, he takes this break. It's like a nice, deep, Breath. And he speaks of objective reality that is rock solid, rooted in truth, that cannot be denied. And as he speaks, he says, Children, fathers, young men. He says, Children, fathers, young men. This is not a technical writing where he's wants to mention every single group. That's not his goal. That's not his purpose. He's not dishonoring women because he doesn't say young men and young ladies. He's just, I believe, very much pouring his heart out almost as, as two lovers would in love letters to one another when they're far away. He's just, he's pouring his heart out in great affection. That's what I mean by two lovers. He's, he's just very affectionately saying this is how I feel, and this is what I want for you, and this is what I want you to know. His thoughts are not necessarily complete. They almost don't make sense because he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. you know. Or maybe that's intentional because we need to hear the same thing multiple times in order for it to sink in. When he's speaking to children and, and young men and fathers, he's not discounting anyone's presence. He's not disregarding anyone's experience. He's just pouring out his soul in a very real, loving way. So what do each of these groups have in common? The children, the young men, and the fathers. What do they have in common according to these verses? They all have a relationship with God. And this relationship that they have with God is being spoken of in different terms. Your sins are forgiven. Well, our sins have to be forgiven if we're going to have... A relationship with a holy and righteous God. He is saying to them, you know him who is from the beginning. Okay, yeah, God is from the beginning. He's he's actually, he kind of started the beginning. There was never a time when God was not. If there was a time when God was not, he wouldn't be God. But he's eternal. eternal, Eternity past, eternity present. He says, you have overcome the evil one. We're going to see that in a little bit, in a minute. These things are true of Christians. Let's look at what he actually says. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I write to you. I write to you. I write to you. These six things, these are not six different reasons. But one reason stated in many different ways he has been previously writing about that which may or may not be true. You might be living in the light. You might be loving your brother. But you might not be living in the light. You might not be loving your brother. You've got to evaluate your own life. You know, So those things, you might be doing that. You might not be doing that. He's speaking with the realm of possibility. He's speaking in the maybe or the maybe nots. But here in verses 12 through 14, he's saying... These things are true. He wants them to know what has actually happened in them. And he says it a number of different ways. Verse 12. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Let me ask you a question. Can we know for sure that our sins are forgiven? Where do you stand on that issue? Think about that. Where do you stand on that issue? Can you know for sure that the Father has wiped away your sin? John would say, yes, you can know. We can know this for sure. It is easy, and some of you in this room are in this boat, you think that you could never know that. You assume that you can never know it, and you kind of separate the church or Christians into two categories. And you say there's those super spiritual people that have it together, and then there's poor little old me who keeps getting it wrong constantly over and over again, and you kind of refuse to grow up. And you think you're being humble, but instead, you're disagreeing with the Word of God. The Word of God says that if you place your faith in Christ and in His atoning sacrifice on the cross... He takes your sin away. And he took the wrath of God upon himself so that your sin would be covered so that you have no debt that you owe to God, not that you could ever pay the debt off. Anyway, it's easy to just say, you know, Emmett and Becky, they got it together like that, but I can never i, I can never live my life like them. And I say, that's a lie from the devil. Put that lie back in your mouth, throw it in the trash can, get rid of it. It's no good. Can we know for sure that our sins are forgiven? If you are trying to be good enough so that God will forgive your sin and you're hoping He lets you in because you got it right, you can't know for sure because it's based upon your performance. But what John teaches, what Paul taught, what Jesus taught, is that we can know for sure because all the provision For the forgiveness of our sin has been made already. Jesus did it. He did it right. And he didn't screw it up like we would have. You can know for sure. So if you're here today and you think, I can never know for sure because I still make mistakes. I can never know for sure because I'm not like her. I'm not like him. You know, I'm just always going to be this way. I say no. Get rid of that. Cast that thought out. It's sinful. It's keeping you from God. You've got a poverty mentality, and you think that the riches of Christ, you think that his inheritance you, you think that that what you that what he says is true, what he wants to give you, you think it's not for you. You think somehow you can stand in the way of God's plan, and the truth is you just need to turn into a child and say, God, that's what you want. Let's do it, God. You can know that your sins are forgiven. Hope fellowship, your sins. Are forgiven. Amen. Don't play that Amen. false humility card and say, "I'll never be good enough for God. God doesn't know what I did. Shoot, he knows what, He knows what you're going to screw up this week. <laughs> and he still loves you. Amen. He does. He does. Accept it and receive it and quit holding him off like this, pretending to be righteous about it, pretending that your way is better than his. I'm going to stop. Verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. You know, I've already talked about that a little bit. You notice he says the exact same thing in verse 14, almost the exact same words. Middle of verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Overcoming. You've probably noticed, but we're in the middle of a battle. And if anyone ever told you being a Christian is easy, I'm sorry. They really lied to you. It's not easy. It's actually the most difficult following Jesus in the midst of a hostile world. Nothing easy about that. Nothing easy about that. You've been enlisted in battle. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. There is a devil and he hates you and he hates God and he wants to steal all he can from you. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy everything. John, in, in the middle of verse 13, he speaks of the evil one. I counted this week at least nine times in John's letter reference to Satan, the devil. I love 1 John three 8. We're going to have fun with that one. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, that's a good one. He's already done it, but he's not finished yet. All right, we'll get to that in a few weeks, a couple months. So nine times John speaks of the devil. The devil is real. He is real. The Bible clearly states that. And one of his greatest, um, I I guess, maneuvers or tactics is to convince people that he's not real. If you don't think he's real, then he's going to have a field day on you. He's going to screw up your life. He's going to make you think you're okay when you're not. And you're going to miss out on the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So this idea of overcoming the evil one, it it directed me to chapter 5, verse 4. I'm going to turn there very quick, just one or two pages towards the end of the book. Chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. How do we overcome? We're born of God. Just as we were born from our mother, We a second birth, a new birth is required. We must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. A spiritual birth must take place where God breathes spiritual life into us that we didn't have when we were born. We had physical life, but we were missing the spiritual life, and that's because of the sin. That's what goes back to Adam and Eve. So, if you're born of God, you overcome the world. But wait, we're still fighting, aren't we? Okay, I'm saved, but I'm still in the middle of a battle. Yes and yes, that's true. Look at the second part of verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do you live the victorious Christian life? How do you overcome the temptation in your life? How do you overcome the sin? You believe. You don't go to a new conference every six weeks to get the next little 12 steps for this or or the next little, you know, best thing out there. I have to have that or I can't walk with Jesus. I got to give this book. I got to keep feeding myself. No, you don't need any of that. I mean, those things can be helpful. I'm not telling you not to do those things, but I'm telling you not to depend on those things. It is by your faith, trusting Jesus, trusting God as you believe in him. Then you have the power to say no to the sin of the world. At our table today, we had a really great discussion and several people saw it. That when it's talking about the world, it's talking about the evil desires that are out there. That's what John is talking about in chapter 5 verse 4 and also in chapter 2. Look at chapter 5 verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that conquers sin? Who is it that stops the addiction? Who is it that begins treating people right when they've never treated them right before? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you want to change? Then trust Jesus Christ and believe that he was the Son of God sent down for us. And everything he did was perfect. So it would be easy to look at what John says about God's commands and think that God saves us because we follow the rules. But this is not correct. We obey the rules and we obey the commands because we believe God, because we have been born of God. We do not do it to merit or gain approval by God from our goodness and because we were in line today with what he wanted. But we do these things because we've been changed by God. The change takes place in us first. And then we begin to obey. And in verse 13, verse 14 of chapter 2 says this. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says this. We obey the rules and the commands of God because He has changed us. We have victory and we overcome the world because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So the last part of verse, chapter 2, verse 13, back to chapter 2. But the last part of chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 is fairly repetitive. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, and he expands on this a little bit. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I think I'm going to say this last part twice. John knows that if we are going to fight the good fight, if we are going to finish the race and keep the faith, then it is going to take more than obedience to God's commands. But that there must be something that drives us, that fuels and motivates our obedience. If we are going to endure to the end If we are going to finish this life well, then we must have assurance that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion on that final day of Christ Jesus. We have to be confident, not that we're going to do a good job in the next few weeks, but we have to be confident that God works in us both to will, that's our desire, and to work, that's our actions, for His good pleasure. That's from Philippians 2, I think. Let me read that again. That we must be confident that God works in us both to will and work for His good pleasure. See, God has to work in you if you're going to want the right things and if you're going to do the right things. That's what it's saying is, is His good pleasure. It's what pleases Him. It's what He wants. And in that, God has to give us the strength. To do what he commands. He commands us to do something that's impossible. Did you know that? And he expects you to do it. But he comes and he fills and he chooses and he just he comes in and he changes us. We can't obey God without God. We need him. And that's why I'm just telling you today. Trust him. Believe Him. Have faith in Him. Know that what He says is true. If He says your sins are forgiven, then accept that and quit fighting with Him and trying to act like you got your act together because you really don't. You just fool yourself into thinking you do every now and then. But He works in us for His good pleasure. We have to know, this is from 1 Thessalonians, but we have to know that God is faithful and He will establish us in our fight against the evil Amen. You don't establish yourself. You fight the good fight. But God establishes you. He writes this because he wants his readers to know that while commands and doctrines are good, they are not enough to bring us to God. We have to obey the commands and we have to believe the doctrine. We have to believe the teaching about Christ. and We have to reach out and grab a hold of Jesus. If we are going to finish and run well for the rest of our life, if we're going to endure it to the end, we have to place our faith in a dead and risen Savior. And we have to place our faith in what He has done for us. What He has done for us is sufficient to bring you to God. He is good. I want to close with a quote from an old British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, John is confident of their salvation and of their progress in the faith. So he encourages them and reminds them of these objective realities as they evaluate their lives according to the test of assurance that John is issuing. I'll read that again. John is confident of his reader's salvation and of their growth in the faith. And because he's confident, he encourages them And he reminds them of the objective realities that Jesus did what he did on the cross. He wants them to be mindful of that and to focus on that as they evaluate their lives, which is what he has been commanding them to do and is what we're going to learn more about next week. Church, God loves you. If you don't know Jesus, I I I want to tell you that there's no one like him. If you're not sure of your salvation, if you're not sure if he's forgiven you, if you're not sure that you got it together enough, I want to just go ahead and clear all that up and say, you're not good enough for Him. You don't have it together enough. You've made a royal wreck of your life in His eyes. Yeah, you probably do some good things on this earth. I, I won't debate that at all. But as far as His law and His kingdom and what it is that He wants for you, you've failed completely. And because of that, you do not have a relationship with God. But He loves the world so much that He sent His one and only Son, that if you believe in Him, whoever, the invitation is to everybody, it's to you, that if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Do you know if you're saved or not? You can know. You're not saved because of your goodness, but you're saved because of His goodness. Why don't you reach out and you grab hold of Jesus? And you say, what you did is good enough for me and Jesus, I want you. And you just start walking with Jesus. You just start walking with Jesus. You don't have to pay him any money. He just says, come. Come on his terms. Repent and believe is what he says. He loves you wherever you're at. Wherever you're at. Whatever you're sure of, whatever you're not sure of, he loves you. And he says, come. That is his invitation to us today.